everybody. This is Issa Cosette, and you are listening to Issa's Way, your favorite podcast that you didn't know existed, you didn't know you needed, but we're so glad you're here. And this week, we have a very special guest, Ariana Benson, a poet storyteller from Chesapeake, Virginia, who completed her MA at the University of London. And she is a Black woman who is telling her story, but also traveling internationally. And you guys know that is my jam, and I love to be able to highlight, to give space, and to uplift our women as we tell our stories, how we move forward with ease. And Ariana, it's such a pleasure to have you tell the people a little bit about yourself and what inspires your movement. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be with you. So I consider myself a Black eco-poet, um, which is something that I think I discovered during Obsidian Foundation, which we'll talk about um, in a little bit. But for me, that means that almost every part of my art, my poetry, the way that I move is informed by um, landscape, is informed by nature. And I use that term loosely because sometimes I think that we over-separate ourselves from nature as humans. Like we think that, oh, there's humanity, there's society, and then there's nature. And I... With my poems, I actually try to um, negate that premise and, and help us understand the ways that nature is inextricably connected to human life and particularly Blackness and Black life, especially being someone from the American South and having all of the history of slavery and things like that, you know, really present around me growing up but also intertwined with all these beautiful landscapes of the Great Dismal Swamp and the beach and the Chesapeake Bay. There's this really interesting confluence of, of the beauty of these lands, but with the histories of violence that happened there. And so I think through my poetry, I'm trying to reconcile these things. And then of course it extends internationally. For me, that mostly first started when I was a junior as well, and going into my senior year, and I took a trip to Accra, Ghana to study abroad for two weeks. And I just decided to try to write a couple of poems on my own, you know, no work assignment, school assignment or anything like that. And that wound up, a poem wound up being uh, one of my first like publications that I got on my own um, about the last Bath River. Um, which is in Cape Coast, Ghana. And that's where um, the enslaved that were at Cape Coast um, were taken to be given a final bath um, before they were taken to Elmina Castle and then gone through that door of no return. Um, and just to be in those spaces and to see, you know, the lush greenery and the water flowing, it's a really beautiful space, but then also it's, it's harrowing. And so for me, poetry is a way to hold both of those feelings um, in one. Wow, that's so beautifully said. And just the, thinking about the experience and the power of, you know, being at the door return, being in that river, being able to feel and use poetry as a tool to find those connections. And Ghana will do that to you because I went in 2016. I had that similar magical experience where you're connecting with your ancestors. You feel this power of knowing. And so the fact that, like you said, recognizing the land and the memories that it holds is also very important. Thank God, right, for Obsidian that allows you to realize and find those connections. It, tell me something about Obsidian. How did that week, you know, besides connecting that, becoming or realizing your eco-poet, um, what was Obsidian like for you? How did it change the way you write, the way you think, the way you read, you see yourself? 
Yeah. Oh man. Um, Obsidian made me actually have the confidence to call myself a poet. I think before Obsidian, I thought that I was just a person who wrote poetry, but it wasn't an, 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 I guess, an identity that I felt empowered enough to embody. I felt that I didn't have enough experience or that there were all these, these bars that I had to clear before I could proper call myself a poet. And working with people like Malika Booker and Roger Robinson just gave me so much confidence in the ability to just say, you know, you have something to say, you're a poet. You write words on the page and you really think about the way you see your world, you're a poet. And so for me, that's what that did. And just by the end of the week, I felt much more confident and comfortable sharing my work, sharing my ideas in that space. And I will say Obsidian was really important space for me because coming from Spelman, which is an HBCU, I was very used to being in predominantly black spaces for four years. And, you know, for me, those are always the safest spaces where I don't necessarily have to explain myself, my history, why I'm writing about the things that I write about, right? Stuff like that. And so that gave me the freedom that I think if I had done another workshop before Obsidian, because Obsidian was my first retreat, workshop, anything like that, um, that I might not have come into myself as a poet and now saying I'm a Black eco poet from the South in the same level of confidence or understanding that that is a foundational part of me um, that is unshakable. So I think that's really what Obsidian gave me, along with community and being able to meet and interact with wonderful people like you who are really doing um, amazing, interesting work, both with their poetry and with their research and just living their lives as diasporic Black people. So it was it was a really rich experience. It surely was like, I am still touched, still moving. Because like, literally, um, like I said, being able to hear each and every one of your stories, like one-on-one um, -on -one because we were all in group in groups into 10 and five different groups but shout out to Nick and all the team that continue to pour into us and shape our minds and like you said give us that confidence because I too <laughs> felt the same way and this was like my first intense retreat right but it was everything that I needed to be to show up in my space and my practice and continue to think right that week and I look forward <laughs> to the next one we were talking about so as you guys are looking and listening Look out for the next, you know, help support, help donate, give to Obsidian Foundation so that we can continue to tell Black stories. And also shout out to Spellman, right? And also shout out to Black spaces that shape our minds, that allow us to show up because that is empowering, especially in times like this. And thinking about how we move and adapt. In your poem, and that was actually published in Anomaly, you say, these movings around their natural habitat pause and attempt to save themselves with camouflage. And I'm just thinking about those connections that you see as you, as you move and as you reflect on and also interpret what's happening in the States. I also think about like Claude McKay, you know, and I think about many, Audre Lorde, like how many um, African-American writers or African diaspora writers talk back to their countries and also explain what's happening in the certain places that they are currently living. So I'm just thinking about how you continue to find these connections of Blackness. And um, can you talk about those overlaps that you find between those experiences and your poetry and using psychology? Yeah, that poem that you referenced in Anomaly for me 
was written after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, and there was just, you know, and there are certain details that reference um, his murder. And for me, it was very difficult to, to process that. And so, of course, I turned to poetry and, and not necessarily because it was anything new or that I hadn't seen before, but because the way that it was covered or uh, handled, I think by larger media outlets felt very new or it, it felt that people were, were paying attention and that people were listening in a way that they hadn't before and that people who weren't Black were horrified in a way that they hadn't been before. And I'm sure some of that has to do with the pandemic and the fact that the world had largely come to a standstill. And so there was no place to look away. Um, but for me, that idea of camouflage and, and much of what I feel that I do as a Black poet is the practice of looking um, and is the practice of thinking about gaze. Um, because I feel that as Black people, we're often denied the ability or the privilege to look away from those horrifying things, right? We never had the option to look away from an Eric Garner, from a Trayvon Martin, from a George Floyd, um, but there were people who did. And so to turn the frustration sometimes of that gaze upon violence into something that someone might read and think about and understand how it is to be forced to look at those things all the time and how that looking affects the way we move is definitely something that I'm trying to do with my poetry. And also, I love that you asked about psychology because that definitely comes into play. Much of my research at undergrad, and I use research very loosely, um, but much of my research was about memory and generational memory, right? And how we can bridge generational gaps through storytelling, right? How stories have been passed down from your grandma to your mom, and now you will pass them down, you know, telling those same stories, recounting family history, and how much of Black archive and Black history is not included in the general canon, is not included in, you know, the main libraries but we are our own living, breathing archive. And that's why I think storytelling, and for me, storytelling is through poetry, is so important because it's important to keep those generational memories alive. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I studied a bit about this concept that is called epigenetics. And it's just this um, theory that memories of your ancestors or progenitors that you did not experience literally changed your DNA. So there's this idea that slavery changed our DNA. The things that um, people went through in the civil rights movement changed our DNA. And so I'm curious how those changes in our DNA appear in the way we move in the world, in the way we remember things and continue to remember things. And so those are the things, I guess, through psychology that I'm trying to explore in poetry. Wow. So thank you for connecting that dot for me. Thank you for showing us that we are living, breathing archives. Boom. Right. So they were here and I'm still learning and still trying to connect the last place. Like, thank you for giving me a way that I need to, you know, a methodology that'll be able to support my, um, <laughs> 
argument of why we move and how we move and tell these stories and how because like I'm looking at mother-daughter relationships and like how like our mother's silence like inspires us to have our voice and how usually through migration or like returning back to our motherlands or you know other, other islands right we find our healing we find our I voice. think that that idea of mother-daughter too speaks so much to my Spelman experience because for me I went to Spelman because my mom went to Spelman um, and, you know, so she was putting me in the little onesies at Spelman, you know, since I was little. And um, unfortunately, she wasn't able to finish all the way out at Spelman. She wound up going uh, to finish her BA at another HBCU, Norfolk State, um, which is in the area that I live in. Um, and so for me, it was really important to kind of complete that Spelman journey with my mom. And at Spelman, there's a tradition um, that you don't walk under the arch. There's a there's an arch in the middle of like the, the main lawn that is covered in ivy um, and that you don't walk under the arch until you, you matriculate. So my mom never got to walk under the arch. So after I graduated, we went and we put on our white dresses because that's ceremonial for Spelman. You know, you wear your white attire and we walked under the arch together. And it just felt like a completion of like 30 plus years of history. Um, so yeah, definitely, you know, that, that idea of mothers and daughters and that history really resonates with me. That's so beautiful. And I'm, I just got chills. I'm glad that, you know, and I continue on this journey too, for my mother and my grandmother who couldn't. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it's also for those to continue on to theirs and they'll be able to. So uh, that's so beautiful that you got to walk and y'all got to walk together. And another way that you're able to share how you're walking in your purpose in your light is I know you have a poem to share with us today. Yes. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this poem, if that's okay, uh, because it has certain specific histories. So Moses Grandy was an enslaved man who carved out the Dismal Swamp, which is a big part of the area that I live in of Southern Virginia and Northeastern North Carolina. And it was a really big um, hub for trade and commerce and things like that. He was the first man to actually start working that land. Um, and of course, this is while he was still enslaved, but he was allowed to live there um, by, you know, what at that point would have been his, his owners. Um, and so he really had this special connection with the land. And so I think it's interesting for me to look at that history because I didn't know anything about Moses Grandy, but I knew his name because there's this long trail uh, down the street from my house that goes through nothing but woods and it's Moses Grandy Trail. And my grandma still lives down there. So one day I, I was compelled to look up the history of it and, uh, all of these things came up. He actually wrote his own slave narrative that's hundreds of pages online, the whole story of his life. So I decided to write this poem that is a love letter from the Dismal Swamp to Moses Grandy. Um, and there are two epigraphs. So the first reads, it was the dense tangled hostility of the great Dismal Swamp and its enormous size that enabled hundreds and perhaps thousands of escaped, escaped slaves to live here in freedom. That's Smithsonian Magazine, September 2016. And then the second one is, here among snakes, bears, and panthers, I felt to myself so light that I almost thought I could fly. I then thought I would not have left the place to go to heaven. And that's Captain Moses Grandy in his own words in 1843. 
think this is Dear Moses Grandy, Love the Great Dismal Swamp, 1930. I send men swarms of insects in the shape of your ghost. They are not wrong to think me haunted, possessed as I am by spirits exhumed from bodies left strewn in my wake. I trick them into thinking me God, but to them I am Eden, wicked paradise of poison, fruit, and beasts. I steep sweat from acrid flesh, sip it in pinpricks with the tongues of jewel-toned bees. I spill their blood in your name. When it seeps into my murk, I turn a rich maroon hue, and I remember you fondly, longing for nights when there was nothing but you and me, twilight's icker and wind quivering in my reeds, a southern serenade. I hope you knew I heard the song of your silence, your heartbeat camouflaged in the thrumming pulse of mine. Now they smelt molten asphalt into my arteries, litter the air with my ashes. I watch myself burn and search for your face in the flames. I knew you then as an amalgam of marsh and man, sometimes just tar black beads sunk into star white glow, your eyes glinting in the glass of my stillness. Under the cover of dusk, you snuck nips of raw honeysuckle, lugged saw-shorn juniper trunks through my mud. Like your namesake, you made many waters from my one, and like the Red Sea, I opened, bared my soul to your people, and closed to your tormentors. I cherish the sacred pleasure of being parted by your hands. I ache for the long ago days when your vessel's crest gently unzipped my quiet mire, like the waning sun ripples liquid along the horizon's serrated blade. You told me then that you would not have left me for heaven itself. So I drag them through the hell they wanted me to be for you. Sis, my heart over here is just like <laughs> the rhythm and the pacing and the imagery. I'm just like, where has she been my whole life? <laughs> what? What you say? I heard the song of your silence. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh. And just to drag in this movement, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for like finding that. Thank you for walking on their journey. Thank you for doing the work so that we can be able to feel. And yes, that was amazing. Thank you. Well, yeah, this is, um, I'm definitely interested in doing the work. This is the work that I'm doing right now. And I'm working on hopefully a manuscript of my first collection. And there are a lot of poems like this one that explore histories that people might not know about, but also um, that explore the love that there was between our ancestors and, and still is between Black folks and the land. So thank you so much for, for seeing the work of this poem. I'm just honored right now. And I look forward to the manuscript, the books, the books to come, you know, and the funding that you need to be able to write and explore and tell these stories, because I know the work ain't easy, yes. um, but we're speaking into existence because that's what we're calling into this space that we are now getting paid to do and tell our stories, not for them, but for us. Um, how are you on your way? Mm. Well, I think 
that's a major part of it is that um, Obsidian kind of launched me into just writing poems and keeping going. And I've done a couple of other conferences all with black women, right? So I've gotten a push forward from Vivi Francis. I've gotten a push forward from Amber Flora Thomas. I've gotten a push forward from Patricia Smith. And so now I feel like I'm on my way, continuing in this journey of exploring black people and our relationships to nature, both the beauties of it and the violences of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm on my way in just sitting in understanding that I am a poet in continuing, like you said, to try to find funding for this work and to just make sure that um, above all else, I'm doing work that honors those that it's intended to honor and that sees those that it's intended to see. Amen, Ashe, and it shall be. Tell the people where can they connect with you? Where can they support your stuff? Yes. So you can find me on Twitter at Literariana. So it's like literary and then it ends in an I and underscore A-N-A. So it's a play on my name. Um, and I'm sure Isa will have that uh, for you. And you can find me on Instagram at Extraordinary. Again, another play on my name. <laughs> um, and yeah, those are usually the places where I tweet about my work or other people's work that I'm inspired by. So would love to connect with people on social media and talk all things poetry and nature and the world. Thank you so much for just opening up and sharing a little bit about you and how your work is just a connection of all of that is and like I say may you continue to get poured into you may you continue to be moved forward and be pushed forward and know that you are an extraordinary poet girl you're doing amazing things and I look forward to seeing your growth and being in touch with you family like friend. Much. Thank you for giving me the space to share these thoughts in my work and um, just creating somewhere where I know that I will be heard. Um, and I think that goes for all of your guests and particularly those of us who are Black poets. Um, giving us a space to be heard is really crucial. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And I see you um, the same way that I feel you've made me feel seen today. Oh, my heart. Thank you. To all our wonderful listeners, may you be inspired. May you realize that you are living true witnesses of many experiences and many wisdoms from those who came before you. But as you stand in your truth, know that you are more than enough. Until mm -hmm. next time, this is Issa Cosette. Y'all be blessed. Mm -hmm.